Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest Jonathan Gottman, partner and chair of Ackerman's Trusts and Estates Practice, for a discussion on the Kasner case, community property trusts, and directed trusts. Okay, we are here with my good friend Jonathan Gottman, um, who is, uh, like many of our guests so far in this podcast series, uh, is a man who really needs no introduction. Um, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, he may be surprised a little bit by the introduction. But I, I met Jonathan. Uh, many years ago at Heckerling, and Jonathan was uh, wearing a, a sweatshirt, which I think may have been torn, um, jeans, uh, and I think he was unshaven, and I talked to him briefly, and I thought, okay, you know, I, I, he seems like a nice enough guy, but didn't, didn't really even know if he was a lawyer, and I found out five minutes later that he was Jonathan Gottman, in fact, one of one of the most prolific lawyers uh, in, in really the United States right now, and even around the world, um, working in the international space, working in uh, the domestic space. And uh, Jonathan was um, not somebody at first that I, I, as I said, even had a law degree, Jonathan. So I apologize for my first initial impression <laughs> of you. Um, but I think it was accurate. And then I remember you telling me you were golfing with the, the, Neva, uh, the prime minister or premier of Nevis. And I thought, yeah, sure. This guy in his, in his t-shirt and jeans was golfing with the prime minister. But in fact, that was true. And you really were Jonathan Gottman. Um, but no, we met years ago. And, and I am all joking aside, thrilled to have Jonathan here. He was a a very early believer in Bridgeford Trust Company and, and what we were doing in South Dakota. Um, he did, in fact, he took chances on, on a young trust company. Uh, we've done some great work together, he and our firms, um, and, and we certainly appreciate the chances Jonathan took early on and, and the friendships that we have built together over the years. Um, Jonathan is extremely prolific, uh, as I mentioned. He speaks all over the world and he is known all over the world and he writes extensively. And he's generally regarded as, as a real expert in international matters, uh, asset protection, offshore and onshore, um, using modern trust laws, and, and has really embraced the, the cutting edge nature of what you can do in modern trust uh, jurisdictions like South Dakota. Uh, and so we're going to cover a lot of topics today. I'm excited to talk to Jonathan about the new case, uh, the new case that it just came out, which is which is big big news all over the United States and even around the, around the world. People are asking me questions about it. I want to touch on some of the international work that Jonathan has done over the years. Um, and uh, talk about asset protection a little bit and how that may have changed in light of CRS and, and really kind of kind of touch on the cryptocurrency market, which is not going away, which needs planning. Um, and Jonathan, with with his uh, honestly and without making a joke, one of the sharpest legal minds that I've ever encountered uh, has, I think, was been one of the first attorneys to really tackle the issue and, and come up with a structure that, that really works to protect everybody when dealing with, with cryptocurrency. Um, so with that, Jonathan, I want to thank you again, not only for your friendship uh, and your uh, belief in Bridgeford over the years, but for being part of this podcast. It's become very successful. People are, are, seem to really like it a lot. Uh, and so uh, I think that we agreed we're going to do a six-hour session with you today, Jonathan. So thank you. I hope you have a cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Jonathan, initially, I would love to get into the Kasner case. Um, you know, that's is everybody's talking about it. Bridgeford's written about it. We're we're in the process of getting a webinar together. If you could describe for me and, and for the audience, for those of you who may not have heard of this case, it's it really is considered one of the most um, important tax cases coming out of the Supreme Court. 
that um, in a narrow fashion, how, albeit, uh, does sort of confirm and affirm a lot of the state tax planning strategies that the attorneys like uh, Jonathan Gottman have been using for years in South Dakota and Delaware and Nevada. So, Jonathan, could you maybe give a little a little background of the case? And I'd love your thoughts on it, because I think so many I think our listeners would be really interested in what you think about it. Sure. T- uh, just real, real quick summary of it. The, the case, ju- you know, just came out. So a lot of us are still picking through it to see what it says and what it doesn't say. Um, you know, you, you had uh, concurring and a concurring opinion uh, at the Supreme Court level. I had a uh, just a, a little bit of history here before we get into it. Um, I, I'm actually friends with the attorney who represented um, the uh, beneficiary. Oh, wow. in, uh, in, who lives in North Carolina in in the case uh, in in uh, against the state of North Carolina, Tom Myrick, um, who's a partner at the Moore and Van Allen firm and uh, con- c- concurrent with um, with um, with the Kastner case. Uh, Tom and I were working on a uh, another matter involving a Cook Islands trust and a local proceeding in North Carolina that lasted for about uh, you know, a good seven years. Which we also resolved very favorably, and it didn't uh, it didn't go up to the appellate levels, but it was a pr- pretty complicated piece of uh, piece of litigation. But anyway, in the uh, Kasner case, uh, you had a uh, a beneficiary who was a uh, was a resident of North Carolina. North Carolina is a state that imposes a state level income tax, unlike uh, Florida, where I live, and in a, a few other states. And um, basically, North Carolina wanted to tax the income of that trust because of, or a portion of it, because of the beneficiary's presence, mere presence, in the state as a uh, as a uh, as a resident. Uh, the trust in question was a uh, a wholly discretionary trust with an out-of-state trustee, uh, out-of-state uh, you know uh, structure, and so. Um, the um, uh, the beneficiary thought that you know that or the trustee thought that that uh, attempt to tax it based on those minimum contacts wasn't sufficient was inherently unfair violated the due process clause um, under the Fourteenth Amendment that applies to states and uh, and the uh, and also uh, not part of the uh, decision at the Supreme Court level but violated the Commerce Clause as well. Um, and um, at every level in North Carolina where you have a, a trial court, uh, you have an appellate, a mid-level appellate court, and then you have a, a state Supreme Court, uh, the trust, the uh, trustee uh, and beneficiary prevailed in that case uh, with the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court and the trial court holding that the, um, that the uh, state of North Carolina could not tax the trust based on a violation of the Commerce Clause, there wasn't sufficient nexus uh, to the state, and also uh, based on a violation of due process. Again, there wasn't, there was not a sufficient connection. The beneficiary may not have ever received a distribution from the trust. That doesn't mean the North Carolina couldn't have taxed it once there was a distribution, but that beneficiary had no control. Um, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, the beneficiary may have never received a dime from the trust. So. Um, Based on that, um, the state of North Carolina didn't have the uh, didn't have the legal basis to tax the trust. Now, you know, there, there's a lot of questions 
um, you know, that seem to be left unanswered, as happens with most cases, and as happens with many with many statutes that get passed as well. So we'll have to see what you know what happens in the progeny of of case law that develops under that. Um, the concurring opinions in the case, Justice Sotomayor um, wrote the uh, wrote the court's opinion, but the concurring opinions noted that it really didn't change anything in existing in existing tax law. Um, that uh, you know old, old case law said that you had to have um, you know sufficient contacts with the state, but it's really a you know, the the the, the the difference in how the court reached its conclusion is 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 you know is really a distinction without without much of a uh, of you know of a, of a reason. So you you can you can look back to the existing uh, existing case law and just say it was a you know a pronouncement of that uh, or affirmation of that old old case law. The um, um, you know in um, I, I think you know where where it's unclear. Uh, is if you have a, a particular right to distributions, uh, you know, uh, if you have uh, a right to income in the future, if you have a right to receive uh, principal. Th this is why, you know, we strongly prefer our clients leave assets in trust, you know, for a variety of reasons, but leave assets in trust um, to the next generations of their family in, in wholly discretionary trust and not in trust that mandate distributions at any particular age because you know again left unanswered is what if your your beneficiary in this case uh you know the beneficiary in, in north carolina uh had the right you know to receive uh uh you know the remainder of the the assets in the trust at you know let's say the beneficiary is age 30 and by the time their beneficiary reached age 40 45 50 would receive those uh those assets in, in you know in three uh substantially equal distributions um, you know, in, in that case, we don't know, you know, whether the state of North Carolina would have had a right to, to tax the trust, whether that would have been sufficient nexus at the time. And, and, um, so, you know, in, in, in cases like that, again, we strongly prefer, you know, for, for a number of other reasons, but this is a good point, you know, that, um, that, you know, it's very clear here that, you know, the, under, under the Kasner case, that the state of North Carolina wouldn't have the right to, to tax that trust if it's wholly discretionary. And if you wanted that potential distribution or distributions to be made, you could still provide for it in what we call a memorandum of wishes and avoid that tax, uh, avoid that tax bite altogether, or the potential tax bite. Well, I'll, I'll just jump in real quick. I mean, I, I appreciate you going through it. What, what, what is exciting to me about the case, as, in you, as you said, is it affirms so much of, of the planning and, and it also affirms, in our view, the the vital importance of selecting the proper trust jurisdiction. You know, these modern trust laws are real. It really matters where you put these trusts. And in this analysis, it was around income state, uh, income tax, uh, tax, state taxation. But you know, for a myriad of reasons, we need to be careful about jurisdiction. So, Jonathan, over the years, I know you've used multiple jurisdictions. And and where are you now as you analyze the United States and and what you think is is among the strongest and and why? What what are the what are the modern trust laws that you like the the most? Most, uh, right now, um, well, I, I think you really have to go on a state by state basis um, because it, it, there, there's so many different aspects. Uh, in and you know, obviously, it's a very complicated process. You have 50 states. You have a few territories that have trust uh, legislation or, or 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 provide for common law trusts as well outside of that and 
and so there's there's so much disparity um, you know, between the laws. Some states have adopted the Uniform Trust Code, others haven't. The interpretation can be different from state to state. There's slight differences in the states that have the Uniform Trust Code. Um, you know, if you want my opinion on 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 domestic jurisdictions, I think I think it's very clear. Um, and uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly don't want to put a smile on your face, but but I, I think it's very clear that South Dakota is the best. Um, it, it's it's ahead of the curve. Uh, I, I think everything that 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 they have done uh, uh, to stay on top, to to stay ahead of the game. Um, you know, they're 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 quick. It's a smaller state. Um, uh, there's, there's a smaller population, so it's easier for them to change their their trust laws quickly without without a significant opposition. They they understand what the goal is in South Carolina. I think the uh, South Dakota. I'm sorry. I think the uh, the banking industry there um, understands it. The trust industry understands it, and um, you know, and and, and and the legal industry, I think that's very important. So there's not a lot of potential roadblocks. In other states, you have to have so many interests that look over potential trust legislation and changes to it that it takes a long time to react. And in South Dakota, that that just hasn't seemed to be the case. It seems to be very quick uh, to react legislatively when when changes are necessary. The, the you know, the, the one, uh, the what we look for, uh, are, are really subtle differences. So I'm, I'm, I'm here in Florida and uh, our, our practice is all over the world and all of the United States for that matter. Uh, but we look to uh, local trust law to see how it, you know, because obviously you have, you have a choice of where you can go to create your trust. And it's very important, not only for the settlor, but for the settlers beneficiaries in issues that you might not even, um, you might not even be thinking about, uh, you know, for instance, the, the, the Kastner case and, uh, you know, and, 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 and tax issues. But the, um, uh, you know, just by way of example here in Florida, for instance, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in divorce cases, we have the, uh, the Burlinger versus Castleberry case. And there's been some other recent case law developed in the same area as well, where we have exception creditors in the court essentially there uh, for unpaid alimony allowed what we would refer to as almost a charging order, a lien to get imposed against the trustee of a discretionary trust or group of trusts, uh, preventing the trustee from even making a distribution for the benefit of uh, of the primary beneficiary who was in default and uh, in arrears and payment of alimony. And, you know, when you think about that and family dynamics, that's sort of outrageous. And that's one of the reasons why we, you know, because of surprise decisions like that, which even appeared in conflict with, um, with existing Florida statutory law in, you know, in that matter, uh, that we recommend our clients that they don't do trust in Florida. Uh, you, you don't have certainty in those areas. And, you know, and, and, and even though, you know, in many situations, you're never likely to get into prolonged litigation, you know, if, if you do, you want certainty and you want, and you want certainty as the, as to the result. And in that particular case, it was a, it was a terrible, terrible result. And it's something that you could, you, you could certainly look to the, to the beneficiaries, parents who created those trusts. And, you know, in, you know, in a, in a, in a very practical level in a conversation with them, if I had been the attorney there, that they would have told me that they would not have wanted, you know, this person's ex-wife to have that kind of influence and control over the assets that they were passing on for the benefit of their son. And so, um, you know, choice of jurisdiction becomes so critical 
uh, you know, in, 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 in situations like that and can, you know, and, and can literally mean, um, you know, mean the difference between continuing a quality of life and a, you know, in a, in a way of life that, that your beneficiaries become used to versus, uh, you know, having everything torn upside down for you and, you know, and, and put yourself into a, uh, into a, you know, into a financial, uh, dilemma with, uh, you know, with significant consequences to it. No, that's a great point. I, you know, before we before we leave sort of the domestic conversation for a bit, I wanted you to comment, if you would, on on the, the community property trust statute. You know, I know you've used it. In fact, you were one of the first of of, of our uh, advisors that we work with around the country and around the world to to use it. I think um, in South Dakota passed it. I think it's two years, two years July first. I think is when it became law, and and it's, it seems to be a very powerful tool. I know there's been some PLRs looking at it, and it has been supported. Um, but Jonathan, what did you like about it and what made you use it so quickly? Because it sounds like it's something you, you incorporate a lot. Yeah, well, um, it will say there's still some lack of clarity on, on the ultimate legal result. But in several cases where clients have died and they've had these trusts, um, you know, we've, we've taken a certain position and we haven't heard back from the IRS. Um, so uh, based on private letter rulings that they've issued to other taxpayers, which are not binding on, on, you know, on, on they're only binding on the, uh, they're only good to, for the taxpayer that requested and paid for the ruling. Yeah. But, um, you know, ba based on practice out there, we do believe that, uh, that it's an accepted mode for the IRS. But again, we just don't have the, um, the backup, um, uh, yet to completely, um, to completely um, uh, re reach that particular result, but but well, what well, I, let's talk about the result. Not, I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, real quick, but what is the result though? Because I think we have some listeners, uh, and I'm often surprised actually around the country how how few people know what what is the result. What what is the theoretical framework, and what what does it accomplish if if it in fact works the way the way we think it does? Sure. Okay. So if you put so yeah, you have. Let's go back to people that live there. there there's only eight or nine or, or ten community property states. Most of them are out west, with Arizona, you know, California, Washington State. Um, and in, in you know, community property is a form of ownership of assets between a husband and wife. Okay, or or Spain. It could be a, a couple that's legally married. Now we have same-sex marriage, so you have to take that into account as well. Um, and there's other examples of, of dual ownership uh, between spouses. So, for instance, community property can you can only have community property, uh, or you can know, form it in a community property state. Okay, you could move to a place like Florida or or a what we call a common law state with community property and can retain its character. But you got to be very careful on how you uh, you know how you handle that those assets to avoid losing the benefits that come along with community property. But basically, with with community property, if I you know, if um, if um, if if you and I are married, Dave, and we live in California, okay, and and we bought. I've been waiting, I've been waiting for you to say that for years. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> we we bought a parcel of land, okay, and we um, I haven't told my girlfriend yet, by the way, but uh, <laughs> but you'll have to tell your wife, right? So uh, so uh, 
so we, we buy a parcel of land out there, black, we'll call it black acre, black acre estates. Okay. With our, with our beautiful California ranch. And we pay, we paid a million dollars for it. And then 10 years later, we've been living there and the value has increased because of the beautiful house we put on there, the swimming pool, the tennis court, you know, the right, you know, the riding, the stables and stuff. Cause we all, we want, we want horses and so forth. Uh, and that increases in value to $10 million. Okay. And so let's say we only have $2 million into it between the value of the land and we paid in a million dollars for all the improvements. So we have, a, we have $8 million in gain. Now, now all of a sudden you die of a massive heart attack. Okay. So because this is, this, because we bought this as community property. So your half, okay, you're going to get, you're going to get a stepped up basis on your half, which represents $5 million. Okay. Or, uh, and, and you'll get a, you'll get a cost basis, a date of death basis of $5 million, even though we only paid uh, $2 million for the property or, or had $2 million into it and a million dollars of basis is attributed to your half. Okay. Uh, but, but additionally, unlike common law states where if we own that property, let's say in Florida as tenants by the entireties, which is another form of, of dual ownership between spouses. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a stepped up basis on my half of that of black acre estates as well. So, so now after your death, I'll have a $10 million basis and I can go and sell it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I won't going to, I won't, I won't have any gain on the sale of that property because that's what happens with community property. Now in California and other States, you're allowed to put that community property into trusts. Okay. And you know, it depends on, you know, the state law, you know, how those trusts are treated and so forth. But okay. Uh, over the years, You've had states like Alaska, South Dakota, and Tennessee, where those states have passed special legislation, okay, and South Dakota is one of them, where you can form a trust. And even though my clients live in Florida, okay, and we don't have community property in Florida, again, unless I, unless my clients lived in a community property state and then moved here and, I, and, they've, and they've taken special precautions to retain that char character on the property, but as Florida residents, I can now go to Bridgeford and I can say, hey, I have these clients with highly appreciated assets and they want to contribute them into a, a trust. Let's say it's an asset protection trust um, and uh, and they want to take their community, they want to take their common law property, put it into that trust. And because of South Dakota law, you can convert the character of that property from common law property into community property once it's held in that trust. Now, when my Florida clients, when 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 husband or wife passes away, so the first one dies, you're going to get purportedly that full stepped up basis, okay, date of death value basis on the value of all the property held in that community property trust. So I put my my clients in Florida or my clients in, a, in another community property state, like maybe New York or other places like that, on an equal footing with my with, with clients of ours that live in California or Arizona or one of the other community property states. So that's powerful. That could be a pretty powerful tax move, right? It, it's a very powerful tax move. And I'm, you know, and, and I always wonder, I'm left scratching my head, why more people aren't doing it. Uh, you, you can create your revocable trust there. You can create your irrevocable trust and you have the ability to, 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 to take advantage of this transformation. And again, you know, we, we don't know, you know, with, with a hundred percent certainty, you know, uh, you know how the tax law will treat this. There's been no, there's been no case law, but we do know the IRS has been very, you know, very receptive to the concept and has been allowing it thus far. 
One more aspect uh, before we move on to your international work <clears throat> about modern trust law, and I know a strategy that you like to use, or not so much a strategy, but I guess more of a structure, is the directed trust structure, which um, is another concept that I am surprised that more attorneys and planners don't know, particularly on the West Coast. Could you briefly describe that and explain why you like it so much for your clients? Sure. Um, you know, again, you get to take advantage of trust laws and, you know, in, in various states with sort of minimal interference at the trustee level. And the why, why this is important is a traditional trust relationship. The trustee, and this is traditional United States. This is not, I'm, I'm, I'm quite used to dealing with this concept from my, uh, from my international experience, because in the, in the offshore world, this is the norm. You know, you, you typically have these types of relationships, these bifurcated powers. Um, but in the United States, we have all sorts of liability issues. So, and, and this is one where you can absolutely say with certainty, South Dakota was at the cutting edge over 25 years ago. Because South Dakota had the first legislation in this area. Uh, and some of the early trust companies, you know, that set up there uh, marketed this, uh, this concept very well in the early stages. Uh, and I, you know, I know all these people uh, obviously very well from over the years. Um, but basically what it is, is it allows you to go to a, a, a jurisdiction such as South Dakota. There's other states that now have this legislation, basically copied the South Dakota model, or most states have. Um, and you, it allows you to go into a jurisdiction, create minimal contacts, you know, with a trustee. And I'm not saying, you know, completely minimize contacts or the minimize the powers or authority of a, of a local trustee uh, can carry other consequences. So you have to think this through on what you do and how you do it. But uh, basically under the statute, you can have a minimal amount of authority vested in a local trustee. And then almost every other important trust power. So that just gives you the nexus, the, the connection mm -hmm. that you need to a state like South Dakota to go and set up a trust. And then you can vest other authority like distribution authority, uh, the authority to manage and direct the investments of the assets uh, and, and a variety of other, you know, voting the the stock uh, or business interests held in in, you know, in a dynasty trust or held in a in a in a, in a South Dakota trust uh, can be vested in third parties. So, for instance, you can have a distribution committee or you can have protector that directs distributions and the trustee has no ability to say no to those directions. Uh, you can have an investment advisor or an investment committee. And again, the trustee has no ability to say no, you know, unless it's a, you know, a completely negligent type of investment um, or an illegal investment uh, to being directed by an investment advisor um, or a protector as to, uh, you know, as to making those distributions. You can give a protector the power to hire and fire uh, trustees and, uh, you know, and, 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 and so you basically bifurcate those powers, but the, the most important factor in all of this, because, you know, obviously trust companies are concerned about liability in that situation, is the fact that, you know, you have this indemnity statute and you have a statute that clearly says that when you take advantage of this, this directed trust um, uh, regime that, uh, you know, is permitted under, under, uh, under statutory law in South Dakota, that the trustee is exonerated from any liability, uh, when, you know, when, once they're directed, and that's extremely important. And that that's where in the, in the traditional relationship where the trustee is 
as held those powers and authority, uh, it becomes a much more expensive type of relationship in the way the trustees uh, charge because they're taking on a significant mm -hmm. amount of liability and fiduciary duty. And in this particular case, that's not that's not the case. And so trustees here can you know, provide services, adequate services at a much lower rate without having to be concerned about a high degree of potential liability. That changes the, you know, the, the insurance premium that you have to pay uh, you know, every year to deal with liability issues that you know, changes the way you know, uh, third parties can sue you or, or you know, potential customers or, or uh, beneficiaries can sue the trust company uh you know in in south dakota but it gives you that situs that you want to take advantage of south dakota law and so that that's the um that that's really the modern structure where where the trust world is going uh and and it's also the the, the benefits of of doing that you know if if, if you're dealing with you know and, and, I, and i don't want to throw out names of uh you know willy-nilly of, of of companies out there but let's let's just take uh you know for example a northern trust Okay, and they're not saying anything bad about Northern Trust because there's, you know, I'm just picking a name out of the year. There's, you know, literally thousands of trust companies out there like like this. But if if you go with Northern Trust and Northern Trust is your trustee and they're managing the portfolios and your assets, and Northern Trust has two or three or four, you know, down quarters, and they may have two or three or four, you know, up quarters as well. But no one's going to be saying, you know, you're not you're not going to have someone in the relationship that's going to be saying maybe we ought to fire these guys. Right. Uh, you know they're going to stick around you know for a long long time and, and there's not a lot of supervision there the beneficiaries would be vested with that supervision sometimes they're not you know uh legally savvy enough or they're not financially savvy enough to know that they have the right uh you know to question you know the the, the way the portfolio is being managed and potentially demand a change well through directed trust you have the ability to make those changes you know in a much faster manner than you would if you had uh if you had a more traditional trust relationship. So mm -hmm. the supervision that you get and the ability to, um, re really the ability to uh, to go with non-traditional portfolios in trusts and investments, you know, whole closely held businesses and closely held real estate and take advantage of startups. And, you know, it, 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 it really is drastically different with a, with a directed trust regime than what you would get with a traditional trust relationship where the, where the trustee is, you know, is strictly um, directed to, you know, to, to follow it, you know, its fiduciary duties. And, you know, that creates a very, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 that creates a portfolio that is extremely conservative and may not produce the best growth. Well, I think it's, and you and I have talked about this a lot, I think that may be the single biggest um, impact when I say that, the directed trust on um, on modern trust law <clears throat> because of all the direction and control that it gives back to uh, to the settlers and advisors. And we love the structure and we love talking about it. And um, I think that in, in 1983, when, when South Dakota was the first to abolish the rule against perpetuities, clearing the way for dynasty trusts, I think those two developments in trust law has, has changed it dramatically. And we were able to do things that couldn't be done when, when I was in law school and it really isn't that long ago. And that concludes episode one of my uh, very fascinating and thoroughly enjoyable interview of Jonathan Gottman. Uh, stay tuned and look forward to the release of episode two, which will be in the very near term, uh, where we continue to talk about concepts like asset protection, cryptocurrency, and bringing the very um, best and, and most uh, sophisticated modern trust law to the table to plan around all of these issues. Uh, so thanks for tuning in and we look forward to, uh, to seeing you at episode two. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. 
For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.